<laughs> hey, welcome, welcome to, to Beyond, Beyond the, the Test, Test Tube, a science, science podcast. podcast. Hey, welcome back everyone. So Elaine and I realized that we never really introduced ourselves. So on this episode, we brought back Mike Country to help uh, interview Elaine on her teaching experience. So thanks for listening and hope you enjoy it. So how's going? So how what's happening with Japan? Right. Um, well, they, they're still closed. I don't know what they're doing. They, they keep on changing the story. So for a while, they said they were going to open, just give us a week, just give us two weeks a month. And then eventually they're just like, yeah, we're not going to open. We have no idea when. Don't even don't even try. And then like they. Yeah, so they they even they even said at one point, they're like, we're going to let everyone in as soon as we take away a lockdown in Tokyo City. And then they took that away. And then the next day they're like, yeah, no, no one's coming in. We have no idea when as well. So I just applied for different jobs and found a job at the NIH, wow. uh, which which is cool. So I have a great position there. And I just happened to sync up with this guy who works on ground squirrels. And so a lot of people work on the retina now in rats or mice, but those are nocturnal species that rely on smell and other senses. So they, they might not be the best approximation of the human retina because they don't rely on the retina as much. They have more rods than cones, a lot of, a lot of differences in their retina. So, so, um, Squirrels use their eyes more. Yeah. Squirrels also have more cones and they have like they, they have blood flow that mimics the human eye a bit more. They might be better models for uh, for medical stuff. And they Plus, have like have... lab squirrels. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's cool that they also hibernate, right? So the, the, the squirrels that they have can hibernate. So we can ask questions about hibernation and metabolism and I'm interested in hibernation and metabolism, just like the prof is. So it's a good match. It's a pretty good setup. So the current plan is to go to the States for a while and start a project and then take that project to Japan to, to use tools that they have in Japan that the States doesn't have. So really cool combination. Like in Japan, they, they do a bunch of stuff with stem cells that is harder to do in the States. So I could probably, yeah, it's, it's a cool setup. Like. I can take advantage of the equipment at both places. So, so you'll sorry. you'll meet all sorts of people that will you know give you all sorts of ideas. It'll be fantastic. Has teaching been online? No, yeah, Elaine. How has teaching been online? I think it's been a different experience with different people. For me, it's been really good actually. <laughs> a lot of work, but the difference is that I taught less. But I think the students learned more, right? Sounds better all around. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I think that because I was so worried with engaging the students that when we did meet, it was meaningful, right? Mm. So so I so I cut down on content thinking, you know, I can't possibly teach all of this now. <laughs> it's not gonna happen. And I should concentrate on what I really want the students to get without overwhelming them so that, you know, they just can't, they just give up halfway, right? Yeah. So, so I decided to choose a kind of flipped slashed blended learning strategy, which asked the student to like, you know, normally we have two classes a, a week. 
So one class, they were just doing stuff on their own. So I made some videos or there were already made videos available that I gave them, you know, or they could read if they wanted to. So however you want to have the material you choose. And then, and then for one of the session of the week, we were doing case studies and, you know, kind of doing just learning activities, answering questions, having little trivia competitions and stuff like that. So they were there to ask questions. And obviously it's a kind of a skewed, I don't know really how most of the students were doing, to be honest. I mean, the, the grades for the class were the best it's ever been, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because I was asking less and they were doing better. The exam format was completely changed as well. So instead of sitting down doing a three hour exam, it was, they had 12 hours to do a take home exam, you know, so they took six hours <laughs> to do it instead. Does that mean it's, it's better for them? I don't know, but at least the stress of the timer, you know, being in the way was not there. So maybe they were allowed, you know, they were, they had the opportunity to show me what they learned. Perhaps there was some academic fraud in, in the mix. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I think that students in my class were pretty good, but because uh, I haven't really seen any of the academic fraud that were reported elsewhere. So I think, I think they just did their job and I did mine and it worked. <laughs> and for that, so, so for sure, by the end of the semester, there were less people coming to class, although it was recorded so they could watch it whenever they wanted, but there were less people coming to class. So perhaps I have a skewed idea of how well it went because it's the keeners that were there in the end. And, you know, perhaps some of them had lost their, you know, their way somewhere during the, the semester, but, but because the class average is so high, I mean, they probably just didn't need it. And they just spent their time doing something else like chemistry that <laughs> demanded so a lot of time. So it's like working better for people on average, probably because the grades are higher, but maybe there are some people that are left behind or, or maybe the occasional people have a harder time. Yeah, but you know, that's true when you're face to face as well, you know? Right. I mean, I don't take presents in class. So by the end of the semester, you know, when at the start you have a full room, there's only half the people in there. So, so there was a little bit less, you know, instead of having uh, maybe 200 students, uh, in the Zoom meeting, then there was maybe 60 of them, right? So that's not a lot, but those two were there, they were committed, they were interacting. I don't know what to do with the other lot that wasn't there. So I don't know if they were working and they were deciding to watch it afterwards. I don't really know. The students did well, so. What do you teach, by the way, Elaine? That was an introduction to cell biology. So it's a first year course. And it's quite demanding. For an introductory course, you must have a lot of students. There's about 500. So I'm I'm not sure whether what actually made the grade go up so much. And and it went up really by like 20%. So it's a huge step, right? So the average for the class this year is like 80%. And normally it's like 60%, right? So so that really changed a lot of things. But the students did the work. So, 
you know, as a professor, you're like, well, yeah, they have to have understood what they were doing. So in a way, I like thought. going from grade 12 to university is one of the biggest jumps that students have, right? It's just a different environment. And, and I remember when, when I did that, it's just a different social environment and, and the things expected of you are much different. I think the university environment, there's a little bit less handholding, I guess, right? And, uh, but I wonder if it's a little bit easier because, you know, if you're going from grade 12, out of grade 12, you probably know YouTube and you probably know Zoom to some degree. Like a lot of people know the internet now. So maybe it's a bit easier to just watch a video online because they know how to watch videos online. Whereas there, there's probably a lot of stress involved with a new campus environment. Do you think that had any role as to possibly uh, i think they had a different type of stress you know and i i think that being online students really had to be astute at the uh, keeping records of what they had to do and like keeping uh, keeping organized keeping a schedule and um, only the ones who would learn how to manage their time properly were going to get through this different professors have different communication skills. <laughs> so that's quite difficult as well. And I've seen it with my daughter because she was at CEGEP. And uh, so I've seen the other side as well, you know, as a student, how she was experiencing it. And it helped me actually plan my class. I mean, it's lovely that my daughter was uh, also going through this as a student. And sometimes I'd say, if I tell this to my students, or if I do this, you know, as a student, how would you, how would you take that? And she was like, oh, I can't do this. Or, oh no, this is terrible. Oh, she was like, oh, that's so fantastic. You know, I wish my professors would do that as well. And so that kind of helped, right? In order to be able to engage what I was doing. And she's a difficult public. <laughs> so I thought, hey, it's probably okay what I'm doing. But um, so, yeah, so. That's great. It's like your own little focus group. So I don't know. I think the students did a fantastic job. Um, this year, they, they they really need a good pat on the back for sticking through it because of all these different, the first semester, they had to learn all these different tools, they have to learn how to go around Brightspace or the, whatever uh, professor is using, uh, the different tech, one's using Zoom, one's using Adobe, the other one's using Teams, you know, <laughs> that's just a nightmare, right? It's pretty impressive because I don't think many work sectors had a 20% increase in their work, work output during COVID. So it's, the idea that students did 20% better in, your, in, the, in this class is pretty, pretty impressive. So. Well, yeah, I, yeah, and I can't, I don't know what to attribute this to. I'm, I'm attributing it <laughs> to the fact that I'm awesome. It's probably not how it happened. <laughs> well, yeah, I sleep better at night thinking that. <laughs> Maybe that's it. But I've had students say that, um, you know, at least they could they could keep up in my class and they were happy. You know, they were they thought that the, the work we were doing was significant, uh, but it, it helped them. It wasn't too much, right? So I think they mm. like the take home exams. I don't know if next year that's going to happen. But um, do you think students are understanding more than just regurg like um, taking things in, memorizing, and then regurgitating it? Because I know when I was doing my undergrad, um, that's what I would do sometimes for big courses or courses I wasn't as interested in. I just 
memorize everything, regurgitated for the exam, and then it was out of my mind. So yeah, because you know, as a student, what you're trying to do is just survive through it, right? I <laughs> think that you're not really left the opportunity to to do what ac academic want people to do, like uh, to explore and delve into the problems and you know be really uh, intellectual about everything it's like well hang on <laughs> you know I have a lab report to do I have three you know kind of uh, assignments and blah blah, blah. So I'm, no there's no digging here <laughs> it's just doing and only to survive so I think that's uh, uh, I think that's probably uh, sad <laughs> for our students and I was talking to um one of my students, like in the podcast, you know, just, just Joshua Dajo. And he was saying, you know, the first year a student comes to university, what do you really want them to learn from their experience? If you think that maybe 25% of them is not going to stay in science, that, you know, or they're going to move, what do you want them to, to know or to, to do about science? And it's like, do I really care that they know exactly how the cell membrane is? <laughs> or do I want them to know what the cell membrane is for, <laughs> right? So I, I... That was a cool episode. That was a previous episode, right, this podcast. That was, that was really good. I like that. The, the idea that maybe we teach with the mindset of training future professors and, and grad students. And, but there, there are other outcomes. Like maybe we need to train students as future politicians or future just you know informed citizens future policymakers etc so. well we want thinkers right so we we i think we we do some of that in science especially if they stick around you know in the third and fourth year and mostly during graduate studies we we develop the thinking side of it but really and I understand that, like I tell students sometimes, there are things you need to know. Like if you were in history, you're studying history and you always have to Google everything because you don't know anything, then you can't really think about anything, right? So there are things that you need to know and that's fine. So you're, you're gaining your Lego blocks in order to be able to build houses, whatever type of house that you want, but you need the Lego blocks to be able to do that, right? So it's, so, so it's a fine line between, so there's a lot of push towards, you know, oh, we just need application and stuff like that. Well, I think you need both really. You need to know stuff, but at the same time, you need to, to know why you're learning that stuff. <laughs> and you need to be shown that knowing that stuff is actually going to help you with <laughs> thinking and be able to play with the Legos, right? Otherwise, you have an empty Lego, bo Lego box and you can't really build anything with it. I guess I, I have a question to follow up on that. So, Elaine, we, we were on a committee together to hire a new prof at the University of Ottawa. So I was a, a graduate student rep and, and I think you were there to represent the teaching staff. And, and the. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I remember you had a different lens than the, I guess, like the research professors. Um, because you asked more questions about teaching style and it kind of made me realize that teaching has a greater depth than I thought. Um, 
and that you you understand that that depth. Like you have different frameworks that frameworks about teaching than than, than I had thought before. So, it, you know, for someone like me, and I imagine Maddie, who who wants to teach in the future, um, like I'd like to teach in a university setting. Do, do you have any frameworks or any models you you can share about teaching or or like you mentioned, for example, this division between knowledge and then application. And uh, I've heard of, for example, like Bloom's method of categorizing these things. So you'd have just like raw information to memorize, and then you'd have a deeper understanding of it, and then you'd have application of it afterwards. Um, so yeah, what, what framework would you give a person who wants to teach in the future? Yeah, so that's called Bloom's taxonomy. And yeah, so you're like, uh, they put it on the pyramid scale where at the top of the pyramid is creativity and, you know, design and that. like, this is what we need to reach. But, you know, it's fine to be creative and all that. But like I said, it's a balance, right? So I know, I'm not sure I would actually, well, you know, who am I to say that, but I don't know that I would put that put it in a pyramid like that, you know. As so if it has a hierarchy that way. Right? Yeah, yes. that's right, right? How would you put it? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, it's a little bit of both because as you as you progress, you know, so you learn a, a few things, you know, like Michael, you're saying, oh, I didn't think about, you know, teaching in that way. That's because you've never been exposed to teaching. <laughs> but when you are, then you kind of have to learn about it, right? So, so, but that's how it works in life. Should I learn about plumbing? How to do uh, like mechanical work on my car? you have to start somewhere. So you have to know what the car parts are. You have to know, you know, what their functions, and then you have to kind of understand how they work together, right? So it's all about bits and pieces. So you have to, to know all of these things. So when you really know well about how all the pieces in the car, how they're used and how they work together, then you can design new cars, right? And oh, I'll change the size of this piece and I'll up this, so I'll add that, you know, and and hopefully they'll improve what I want to do with the car. So, so all of this needs to be taken into account. You need to know stuff. You need to know how to use the stuff. And then you can do wonders with it. You, you kind of need both. How did you get started in teaching, by the way? Like, where did the interest come from? Well, there's two things. <laughs> One is, um, so I was doing a postdoc in Australia, and I was really happy doing that. But at the same time, the... Um, the type of experiments I was doing were taking a long time, you know, like you know, animal models that takes months and, you know, breeding so many animals. And I really got downtrodden about the whole competition. And, and I was like, I, ca I can't see myself doing this all my life. And what I really enjoyed doing was the uh, students I had, you know, taking them through the mechanism and planning experiments with them and then watching them thrive. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe this is what I should be doing, <laughs> right? So I kind of started doing more of that. And uh, eventually that's, you know, this position that you opened up and I applied for it. And amazingly, I got it. So I was super lucky. <laughs> so I'm like grateful and pinch myself every day because it's just a wonderful job. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, what is the metric of a good teacher yeah, or the measure of a good I teacher? I don't know. I think it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, some people really like to be told precisely. They're like really meticulous. They like to be told precisely. Do I need to know this? Do I need to know this? Do I need to know this? And they, they're, um, they're kind of lack a little bit of self-confidence. 
So, so that's quite hard. And there's the other lot who's like, don't bother me. I'm doing what I need to do. And then I'll do it and then stop piling stuff on me. I'll just do it. Right. And so it's like, well, you know, and then they just want to do application stuff. And the other one wants to learn things by heart because it's, you know what, you, so I have a list of words, <laughs> I have a list of things and I can learn those and I know that I'll do well, right? So yeah, there's both camps and you can't please everyone. In a way, I, I, I thought of, I thought of this at one point. So a couple hundred years ago, we probably wouldn't have given a number for each course. We wouldn't have, have graded people at all. And there's something strange about translating someone's experience in a course into a single number at the end of it and maybe that's what's going on like more and more I think the grade really does matter and a lot of people that I've talked to in courses they're like my only chance of getting into med school is if I get this grade in this course so they they probably want to learn the biology but then the grade is a necessary thing that's their their biggest goal is the grade and then next in line is biology so yeah so um I recognize that well, you have to recognize that a hundred years ago, they didn't have 1,200 students <laughs> in the cell biology class. <laughs> but yeah, it, so teaching has become less mentoring and more transactional, I'd say, right? So you do this test and you'll get this grade. And then you do this bit and then you'll get that. So it's, it's become kind of very transactional rather than mentoring. So I'll show you how this work and then I'll take you through it. And then you can ask me questions and then I can feedback on that. And the thing the, the reality is there's just no time for this, right? So, so all my you... students, <laughs> they're muffins. They're muffins made with different batter of different types and different quantities. I have an oven that starts in January and finishes in April and you have to cook by April. <laughs> I love your analogies, Elaine. Some won't be cooked, some will be overcooked. You know, that's the that's the business of it all. And that's annoying for professors, right? They would all cook eventually if I had the time to take care of each of and everyone. But the problem is I haven't. So it sounds like you're saying that that in an ideal world you would you'd mentor everyone, but the you know the fact that there are so many students to, to, to deal with at once or to, to work with at once and the fact that you have to kind of grade them with this the system because of that those things get in the way of mentorship so definitely because the feedback to, you know probably people have done this better than me and the feedback that you can give 500 students how valuable is it if i could at least give them time as much as I wish I could give them and have more meaningful evaluations because it is transactional, then, you know, would that mean that retention and learning would be better? I think it would. And I'm trying to, you know, do my best. So we're trying different things. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sounds like you've kind of preempted a question I had so in my experience, I went to university by correspondence and out of you know 40 plus courses that I did in my undergrad, only one of them had any lectures at all. So I, I, I often kind of wondered about this, you know, 
whether in the future teachers will be less important um, or if they'll be if they'll be equally important because you always need a guide and someone human to kind of to be there and mentor someone so do you think that now that we've gone through COVID and people are, are teaching on Zoom and making, um, you know, MOOCs and, and like the multi, um, I forget the, the acronym, but there are, lot, there are lots of online tools that are coming up that sort of, in a way, replace teachers sometimes um, or, 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 or give one articulation away from the students um, and the teacher. So do, do you think teachers are gonna be less valuable or differently valuable in the future or is it still gonna well, be the same? I don't know. I think I think you're the odd one out. <laughs> being able, <laughs> I don't think you're in the normal curve here, you know, with the being able to do like a whole uh, degree uh, online, well, through reading or, you know, on your own. Um, I think most students would not be able to to go through this and just stick with it. And it's been shown that MOOCs, um, most people don't go through them. You know, they kind of uh, start motivated and never finish, really. So I think that removing the teacher is going fully transactional then. So why would you go to school if you can learn on your own, right? What's the point? So if you can just pick up books and learn about, and you can, it's possible. I could decide I want to know everything about uh, geography or like, a, I don't know, something. And I could decide to, to do it. Reading books about how to actually uh, like work on a boat or, you know, be a sailor. It's not going to tell you how to be a sailor though. Like you have to go on a boat and do it. <laughs> um, so, so, so there's different things. So it depends what you want to learn. It depends on the individual that is learning. And learning is such a human experience that all the spectrum of all humans is going to be involved in this, right? So, so it's entirely dependent on character. So what a good mentor will do, so you could be mentored really, really well by a fantastic mentor, but that doesn't actually fit with you, right? As an individual. So all of this can happen <laughs> so exactly what is the best? I don't know. <laughs> so I think that we're trying to do both things at university where there is some mentorship. And especially if you start further in like in upper years where you go and work in the lab and, you know, all of these things there, and there is some men mentorship happening there that it's more personal. So the education is more personal to you. But you know, like uh, this, I don't know if you've seen the movie Star Trek where Spock is learning in his own little pod, you know, and the computer is like interacting with him and, you know, he's learning as. That's right up Mike's alley. That's exactly, yeah. I, I have Star Trek tattoos and I've watched every episode more than once. So I totally remember Spock training on Vulcan. And, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to explain the scene for the listeners that? don't watch Star Trek? Right, right. So to anyone who's been unfortunate enough not to watch every Star Trek ever, multiple times, on Vulcan, the way they train everyone is to put them in this little dome 
and there are computer panels all around you. And then you have a voice that will ask you questions and you can quickly tap in the answers on these computers that are surrounding you. And uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, a huge Zoom meeting all around your face, all 360, and you can just turn around and quickly tap in all the answers as you're being asked fast questions. So, Interesting way of learning. So I think that there is a, a place for that. I don't know actually what the future is going to hold. I, like, my point was that taking the humans out <laughs> of the learning was not going to be helpful because even if you, but then, you know, if you have artificial intelligence that can actually follow a student and challenge the student at the place that they're at, you know, that could be an assistance that could be useful. Um, especially if you have numerous students. So if you have an AI to track where students were making mistakes and, you know, trying to be more responsive personally as a, as a professor, then perhaps you could help these students a little bit better. But taking the whole human experience out, I don't think a lot of students would um, thrive in that environment. I could be wrong. I think a lot of students right now are kind of experiencing what Mike experienced during his undergrad, where it's all online. Although a lot of us are lucky enough to have professors uh, be able to help us over Zoom, but do you have any resources that those professors could use to help provide that human interaction for students? Look, I'm like uh, the worst introvert in the whole world. so. It's actually awkward for me to interact with people in the first place. Just to show you how, you know, I like, I'm not funny and I'm not, an, I, I don't, I, you know, there's like people who will um, go and be like bingo hall people where they gather all these old people and they, they can just, you know, entertain the whole crowd. That's not me. <laughs> you not me so trying to do that in a class is just not gonna happen but I tried anyway <laughs> and it was so funny so there was this one trivia quiz that I wanted to do with the students so I pre so I asked students who were willing to participate to give me their names so that you know I would have a bank of students and not cold call people on the on zoom because I don't know. I, I know students don't like to be called called to answer trivia questions. So anyway, so the bank of people who were willing to participate, I put in a, a sort of wheel. So it's a wheel that is on the internet and you put their names on it and, and you just click on the wheel and you know it goes round and round and round and eventually it stops on a name. So you can so you can call that person and that person had to answer like trivia questions. And the wheel you know there's a little clap and you know yeah like a little crowd that goes yay and and the thing is that when you're on a zoom call with your students and nobody is actually look there you know all i see is black squares and i'm the only one in there going like yay such and such why don't you answer these questions it was i felt like the village idiot in front of the camera it was really bad <laughs> and at the same time I was laughing at myself and I thought you know this is crazy what am I doing <laughs> I have no idea 
what the students thought about it, but it was crazy. So that was a fail. <laughs> Pretty hard to hype up a crowd if the crowd's not giving you any feedback at all. It's like a comedian who's at an open mic night, but then no one's saying anything or laughing at all, right? They're just gonna get awkward. I've been hearing from a lot of other people who've kind of had the same problem where um, some students may choose not to turn on their mic or their video camera during class. And when I was TAing, I was trying to be kind of extra silly and getting people involved to try and get them to um, interact more with the class. But so I guess it's something that's been going on more. But it's also really taxing to be on screen all the time. So I understand students not wanting to do that, especially if they're like me right now, they're in the bedroom and they don't want to share their background or, you know, they have three people in the room because they can't move around. They, they, they don't have the space to be in the room by themselves. So, uh, the, yeah, so, so I understand all of that. That's, and that's fine with me. And I think there's still quite a lot of interaction that you can have in a chat room. So I, I never felt this, although it was weird to have those black squares, I never felt like the students weren't there. I was alone, apart from that <laughs> trivia moment when that was really, really silly. But because the chat is there and they're talking to, the, to each other through the chat, I, I never felt like a, it was an empty room. Okay, so maybe it's up to the person teaching to change your perspective because things are different now and it's not the same as before the pandemic. Yeah, I think everybody's different, right? When we go back to teaching in, in person, if, well, presumably that's going to be a mainstay after COVID's gone, right? Yeah. Then what about other methods than lecture halls? Like, Do you, do you have any opinions about working in small groups or like some unconventional non-lecture hall methods of teaching? Yeah, so for for that class I was teaching, you know, the first years, you know, forever and ever, I've been hoping that they make an interactive class that is big enough for the whole group. And uh, that's a big ask. <laughs> I mean, there would have to be so many. But we have at the University of Ottawa, we have those interactive classes, I think you can sit 117 people max in one of them. And what I mean by interactive class is that there's no desk. There's only chairs that on wheels around the room, they're boards, like whiteboards that the students can use and they can use them in group. So those are really active learning classes. That's ideally what I would like my my class to be like, so that nobody's sitting down or, you know, uh, just stepping away on their computer. They're all working at things. You it's like one of those Star Trek, Star Trek pods <laughs> that you described earlier, <laughs> but like everyone is inside the pod together instead of one person per pod. That's a great thing to say. Yeah, I guess that's, that's it. Because if you're like, you're a scientist now, do you work alone? Do you work isolated alone at working out problems in your experiments? No. Yeah, the, the, I think that the thing I missed the most during COVID for science has been the conversations over beers or over coffee. Uh, or just like in the hallway where you 
you kind of just describe to someone what you're doing and they have an idea and, and that that's so much more valuable because it's not just the information you share, but the excitement and, and you know, there, there's, there's something effective, like affective about it, right? Something emotional that kind of gets you more excited about it. So, so maybe that's also true in, in the, the larger classroom you're talking about, like the unconventional classroom. Exactly. I mean, you know, if I throw you problems, then, you know, if you're good at doing this and the other person's got their own baggage and the other person's got their own talents, and then you put them together to try and solve this, then you're more likely to learn off each other and succeed than just trying it on your own. So, so ideally that's what I would like to do, but the amount of students I have, and I was thinking of splitting them into smaller sections. So I would have like six <laughs> sections that I would have to teach each twice a week. And I was like, I'm gonna be in there all week. <laughs> just teaching so but I mean so it's not feasible but ideally that's what I would like to do so the advantage of the smaller groups I guess is just that people can kind of express themselves more or they just get to to talk about the ideas more so they're not just quiet in class like what, what's the, the benefit of those interactive groups what you gain in a group if you're open your mind and you have like a an open mindset to group work um generally you know three brains is better to solve something than one brain is except if you have a really big brain <laughs> like if you're if you're the one in the group who's dragging the other two along that's bad but so yeah so group strength is difficult to to gauge and to sort uh, at this level but you have to learn to uh, work with other people as well. I'm not exactly the same as you, so. In, uh, in high school and university, did you have mostly positive experiences when you worked with groups of people on projects? I did, because as an introvert, when I was forced to talk to people, I always benefited from it. It's a good opportunity for students who are quiet to get the chance to speak up more. Yeah, because put me in a large group and I'm not going to say a word. But, you know, as the three of us here are talking, I just can't shut up. So that's fine. But um, I, I can, there are other people who really, really are terrible at working with groups. So part of life. What's the best method to grade a student? Is it, is it mostly exams or do you prefer something more like a report and like an essay where they can be more creative? So Maddie and I were, were talking in the break and we both have a few questions about the best way to grade students. Yeah. So do you have any opinion? Like what's the best way to, to measure someone's knowledge and understanding in a course? I don't think there's any one way and it depends what you want the students to learn. So depending on what you're evaluating, that might change, right? I think that um, ideally I would let students actually show me. So if I have like a learning objective, show me that you know how replication works. And then if they would use a drawing or a video or a podcast or anything that they want to give me, ideally I would let them. But uh, in the reality, logistically, you can't do that. It really depends on what you want the students to, to show you that they know. I have a question related to that. Are you a professor who believes in exams? 
Uh, I think exams have their place. I don't know. I, I mean, I keep trying to learn about ungrading, how not to grade. And at the same time, I keep thinking, well, some do better than others, right? So they should be told so. I mean, is it a pass or fail? Um, I, I don't know. I keep jumping about on that question. I don't know how to ungrade. Wait, what do you mean by ungrading? Well, there's this trend now <laughs> that people are discussing a lot is about grading less. It's kind of uh, telling the student, this is what I want you to be able to do. And this is what I want you to be able to know. And if you show me that you can do these things, you pass. So it's like a pass or fail, virtually. Sounds like an apprenticeship. Yeah. You're, yeah, you can either repair the leaky pipe or you can't. That's right. But I think that if if we did that, which would probably be a good thing, the whole system needs to change. It needs to change from primary to secondary school to university, to medical school, because, you know, scores are really important in medical school. So how are they going to evaluate that students deserve to be medical doctor? It might be completely different, so it could be a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. That reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, where it was more of a mentoring style instead of just a transaction. Yeah. Yeah, that's the whole idea, but I don't know enough about it to talk about it like I know anything about it. It's just the impression I have of what this ungrading thing is. If you're comfortable with that, I have a, a bunch of questions about grading and probably too many for the podcast. So if could I really quickly run through a few things and you could just give a thumbs up or thumbs down, like you okay, sure. need a sentence or something, but all right. So just what's your opinion really quickly on half marks? or quarter marks <laughs> good or bad i use them good <laughs> yeah. okay cool what, what about bonus marks sure can anyone get 103 percent is fine on a grade that's fine <laughs> yeah all right uh peer grading has to be um well trained for the peers well, okay. They, so the peers need more information, more specific it needs, information. Yeah. About how to it, needs, it needs to be scaffolded. So you need to train people to evaluate people. Would you grade people on their grading? <laughs> Anyways. Um, anyway, I I'm totally gonna, would. It was a joke, but. <laughs> it's not uh, a joke. I've yeah. been thinking about it. <laughs> That's great. What about grading people in a group? So if you have a group project or group presentation, giving them a group mark. So yeah, I've done that before because it's the easiest thing to do. But the thing is that you can also ask them to evaluate each other as group partners. And mm. you can also ask them to evaluate themselves as a group partner as well. This is kind of like the pod scenario in Star Trek. <laughs> I don't know where the pod from Star Trek fits in, Madeline. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, because he's like asking you all these questions and you're answering them really fast. Oh, right. oh yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. all right. Two more things. Uh, grading yourself or self-evaluations. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Well, and would you use them to influence someone's final grade for a course or is it just? 
No, I think it's formative. Yeah. Right. So I think uh, introspection, metacognition, those are really, really important skills to have. Yeah. Uh, very last one then, makeup exams. Makeup exams would be great. Logistically, large groups, impossible. Nice. Thank you for all this quick knowledge. Yeah, yeah thank you for, you survived <laughs> the Star Trek pod. You passed the Vulcan Science Academy, I think. Makeup exams, I like it because, you know, that muffin story I was saying, you know, if you're not cooked by the time you should be cooked, <laughs> well, you know, according to a normal distribution curve, then, uh, you know, it maybe it gives you that little more time to, you know, more time in the oven, I'd say. But practically, it's just not, I mean, it's not possible. You know, I, I have a strong opinion about makeup exams. They, they've been really positive for me. So actually, um, I remember taking two courses back to back and uh, one of them was on teaching in my undergrad. And the other one was a, a really difficult biochemistry course with a prof that just happened to give everyone a really low mark. Basically like the best people in the class never really did that well. Right. And I remember at the time I was going through a, some, some poor health and I was working full time while I was going through school and I just didn't do well on this biochemistry class and I was offered the chance to, to do the exam again and I got a, a much better mark and I, I remember all that stuff today even like that it was a really similar exam that I don't think it was much different but because I was forced to repeat the material I remembered it at the same I, time I remember in this teaching course they actually described that testing is actually not just useful for evaluating someone's knowledge but also ingraining it like to, to make sure that they really have it because you know when you're tested on something you're running through that stuff in your head and you can solidify it and, and ingrain it better so yep. you remember it later so so testing as a method of learning i think is something that that is kind of underrated like I, I i think if you do a makeup exam makeup exam you probably actually just remember the stuff better testing definitely focuses your mind it engages your your cognitive uh, capacities and the concentration that you need in order to be able to read the question well, to understand what is asked and to uh, know what you need to know in order to answer the question definitely is part of the learning. So the more of these questions you do, the, the better it is. During my undergrad, my friends and I would sit down and we'd make um, study quizzes for each other to help learn the material. Yeah, that's fantastic. So. I guess I'd, I'd have one more question. Um, is there a resource that you'd recommend for someone like me who'd want to teach in the future, but doesn't really know too much about it? Or like something that you'd recommend for yourself if you were to redo this, you give a give your younger self a resource? Uh, sure, there's quite a lot of, of resource out there actually, but um, there's one book that that is generally like a really popular book and it's called make it stick so it, it just goes through some of the theories i guess of pedagogy and how to teach yeah but really simply um so it's, okay. it's like a book of tricks for teachers do you have any advice for people who are just getting into teaching yeah um firstly don't be too hard on yourself i mean because uh it's actually, some people have, are really natural at it. I, I have to work hard <laughs> at teaching and it's not the planning and it's like, um, 
because what's the hardest I'd say is remembering that your students don't know what you know <laughs> it's bizarre to say right but the have such an open mind to listen to your students and to work with your students and to understand them is the key to be able to have this partnership with your students. If you're partnering with your students, not in the fact that you have to be friends with them, but in the fact that we're, this is hard and we're going to work together and I recognize the work that you're doing and I, I make you do this work because of this. And they, you explain the value that the work you're asking them to do has. I think that the buy-in is a lot more than it could be otherwise. And this is something that I learned that I did. When I started teaching, I didn't do that. I didn't work with my students. I didn't. There was a lot of mistakes I did when I started. But those are really important I guess that's how you learn, right? So it sounds like you're saying to be humble and to be human. Those are the two main things to do as a good teacher. So That's spot on, Mike. Yeah, cool. I know it sounds weird, but, you know, if, if I was to teach a course on development, I don't know anything about development or development of the eye or anything, but I could tell the students, well, I think those key points might be important and what happens then? And I, I could ask the right question in order to guide the students to, to get to the material and explain it to me. And, and that would be teaching them still. And we would be working as partners there. But it's not about the person on the stage. It's about the people in the room. So, yeah. I think that's, that's also good advice because, you know, my experience teaching in a TA position, like sometimes I felt like, you know, a 15 year old asked to babysit a 13 year old or something where you're like, oh man, like I, I just learned this stuff last year. So <laughs> I have to relearn it because I forgot it. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you're not an expert in the thing you're teaching and you kind of like quickly read up on it and then have to make a, you know, make a plan to, to run through it in the next couple of weeks. So, so yeah, it's kind of good to keep in mind that maybe the knowledge is, is not the most important thing. It's just it's just one of one of many important things. So, for sure, I mean, knowing stuff is better than not knowing stuff. But you know, <laughs> put in a bind, you should be able to get yourself out of the corner. I care about the science. I care about my students getting a, a good experience and getting a, understanding how beautiful science is. That you know, <laughs> that's what I want my students to know. At the end of the day. I want my students to say, wow, cell biology is pretty great. And <laughs> I'm success. You know, I heard a theory about teaching once where there's not just information to transfer, but, but there are three things. The, 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 the model they gave was that you need to give information. So there's a certain knowledge goal, but there were th they, they listed not just information as a goal in teaching, but also um, sort of a kinesthetic goal. Like sometimes, let's say you're, you have a diabetic patient and you're a doctor, right? You need to teach them not just the knowledge about blood sugar, but also how to measure their blood sugar. So, so there's some, actually a practice they have to get into. And most importantly, there's this sort of effective goal, like emotional goal, where you have to explain to them why it's important to measure their blood sugar. And this theory presented, you know, the, the kinesthetic information and emotional goals 
out of those, they said the emotional one is the most important because if someone, you know, gives a damn, they're going to find the information and the, the method out on their own. So, um, so maybe that's what you're getting at when you keep going back to being human and, and mentoring people as much as you can. Um, maybe it's to, to inspire more than to inform. Inspiring people is really hard. I, I hope that by the end of the class I give, at least the students valued what they've learned and they understood what they have learned can be useful through their life. And I hope that they can think about the subject in a, at least a slightly informed way and see how it impacts their life and all the life around them. All microbiology and all cell biology Obviously, it's everywhere. And yeah, so the beauty of it is is important for me to impart on them. I don't know if that is inspiring or not. I have no idea, really. I think that's a nice goal that you want to impart that knowledge to your students. It's kind of a good point because I can imagine someone teaching art by going really particular and they're like, all right, we're going to teach chiaroscuro shading, but we're going to show you all the angles and exactly how to hold the pencil and all these like particular things. But we don't do that in in a lot of the humanities, like it's, it's science has a little bit of an art at the grad level. And maybe we could also art that at the undergrad level, I guess, is what you're saying? Just to, to, well, to get you know, you, just how proteins are shoveled through the cell. It's absolutely fantastic. It's amazing. So I, I mean, I can't imagine why anyone would say this is just complicated science. It's sewn up. It's just amazingly beautiful. I that's what I want my students to know. Just the sheer amazing beauty of it. Science is pretty cool. I like the field we're in. So we've been talking for a while now. Is there any other questions we wanted to ask Elaine before we wrap this up? I've asked Elaine too many questions and feel like we should let her be free now. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks Elaine for letting us pick your brain and telling us about what being a good teacher is and all the resources that are out there. Thank you. This is useful. I, I want to teach in the future and it's sort of an intimidating field to enter because it's, it's almost like parenting where everybody has an opinion about it, but then very few people have facts behind those opinions. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to you about this because you both have facts, but you're also humble and, and approachable about it. So thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And I wish you all the best in the in Bethesda. Yeah, Bethesda than Japan. Yeah, thank you. I'll um, keep you posted, I guess.